This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you, as the parent, can follow their ride on a live tracking map. Yeah, when your teen requests a trip, they're matched with highly rated, experienced drivers and you receive real-time notifications. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today, they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. It makes them feel safe, and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. And today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Shout out to our number one super producer, Mr. Max Williams. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, he's he's looking uh looking like a real snack today. Uh, oh yeah. Also, I'm Ben. Oh God, I sounded really pervy. I thought, oh yeah. <laughs> it was a oh, yeah. It's like a cartoon where where all of a sudden Max just looks like a roasted chicken, kind of hovering, you know. And the I'm eyes pop sort of, out. Yeah, and the tongue goes exactly. down. But then I'm not quite sure. Am I hungry or am I horny? I unclear. Unclear no, in the original mm-hmm. cartoon. I think well. you could be Very both. So yeah, you can <laughs> be mutually exclusive. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been your Noel. We are exploring something that's been a personal passion for all three of us uh, separately, way before we ever stumbled into podcasting, and that is missing media, lost media. We're in an age where there's more just media in general than ever before throughout the entirety of human history. It is getting a little bit ridiculous, but along the way, a lot of things have gotten lost. This is part of a continuing series. Our research associate, Dr. Zach, is also really excited about this. One night over sleep town, a doctor appeared, but this was no normal doctor. Who's there? It's Zach. Zach who? 
the doctor named Zach. And he's here to fill your scripts. And just for knowledge, pet his cat. Teach you history, books and stuff. Um, let's go with other things. Yeah, that'll work. And I think we begin it in in a way that everybody can identify with. Actually, I almost texted you about a related question off air, Noel, but I didn't want to bother you over the weekend. You ever get the thing where you're like, I kind of remember that song, or there's a scene in a movie that I remember and I really want to figure out the name of it, but dad gummit, I've searched everywhere. My Google foo is pretty good and I still can't find this. Well, first of all, for me, sometimes those are false memories. Uh, and I think, you know, the Mandela effect is strong with many of us where my, my girlfriend once was like, we were talking about the movie Hedwig and the Angry Inch. And she described this scene. And I was like, that sounds awesome. But that wasn't in that movie. She goes, oh, no, it was. No, it definitely was. And we we had to, like, watch it together. You know, it's a, nah, it must have been a special edition or something because I was definitely in there. And, you know, a friend of the show, the creator of that, uh, of that movie, John Cameron Mitchell, Mentioned it to him. He's like, no, nope, never happened. <laughs> but to your point, Ben, yes, there certainly are uh, things that either hit the cutting room floor and aren't archived past a certain point, or maybe you caught it in a DVD version that was never reissued again, and mm-hmm. now you can't find that particular copy anymore. You recommended a movie to me for Spooky Season, which I love, a Tale of Two Sisters, mm-hmm. not streaming anywhere anymore. Nowhere. It's tough. I've got the I've got the DVD if you want it. It's not too late. We still got a little Halloween oh, yeah. time. Yeah. So I'll bring that over. But fabulous. I- fabulous. <laughs> uh, scary. Genuinely scary movie. You guys know what movie I really wish I could find a copy of? Mm. What? Shazam. I know Shazam is a real movie. <laughs> and I want to see it. I think you mean I think you mean Kaboom. Kaboom. No, no. Uh, ah. Shazoom? Sinbad's Shazam. It is a real movie. I remember watching that in Detroit as a kid with my brother. Is that the one where the genie is the annoying house guest with Phil Hartman? Well, so there is Kazam with Guest With Sinbad. That movie really exists. I I know. No, it doesn't. It It 100% exists. Oh, my gosh. You're gaslighting the world right now. No, the world is gaslighting me. No, Max, it's not. Gaslighting is the thing you made up because you're crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And scene. (laughs) I literally have a Gaslight Anthem poster right behind me, so... Uh, yeah, check out our yeah, check out our stuff. They don't want you to know episode all about the Mandela effect. But you see this conversation. The three of us are pretty good friends, and even we don't agree on things like this. That's one of the most fascinating and infuriating things about what we call lost media. The dry definition is it's anything that was once made for public broadcast, but it no longer exists, or urban legends of media that may have existed at one point. And we had a, we had a great conversation in our pitch meeting about this for a while. Our, our pitch meetings are great. I think one day we can record those mm. if we ever need an episode. But uh we but need to censor it a lot. We'll need to censor a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I Just come in fanny, though, not, nothing else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh so let's see. Um one example is uh fairly recent, right? The sci-fi series Doctor Who, 
Like, to be clear, we're not talking about old broadsheets and newsprint that disappeared. We're not necessarily just talking about like lost novels. Doctor Who was on TV. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, archiving certainly is a very, very important um, discipline and an art unto itself, you know, just to make sure to preserve, you know, historical things, uh, historical media, obviously all those kinds of things, very, very important. But when you have uh, things that are in their very nature, ephemeral, like certain types of film, for example, or or whatever it might be that can degrade over time. If you don't jump right on that and make archiving like a huge part of your process, you will end up with lost things. There are 97 lost episodes of Doctor Who. And I'm not sure, you know, oftentimes this can be be the result of shoddy, you know, uh, archiving. It could be a fire, you know. This is before we had digital backups and server farms and, you know, cloud storage and all of that stuff. So if you, if the building was lost, then uh, so so was the media. Um, So if you've seen these 97 episodes of Doctor Who, like when they aired, uh, then then you are among the, the chosen few that will have to reserve replaying of these episodes to your literal memory. Yeah, exactly. You know, and this can happen also with content that has been banned. We're going to talk a lot about stuff in the global West, but make no mistake, in eras of repressive governments or authoritarian regimes, Lost media was erased on purpose pretty constantly. So there there are accidents, uh, just human error, and then there are purposeful attempts to erase something from history. And, you know, a lot of a lot of people would say, well, hey, guys, that sounds weird because we're in the digital age. Everything is up in the cloud, man. But not quite, because for a long time, the cloud didn't exist. So Let's look, maybe this time, let's look at uh, early film history, right? Those are the some of the most common pieces of lost media. Uh, there's one in particular, oh, it's the vampire movie. What is, we'll get to it. London at Midnight, something like that. There's a there's a vampire movie or a creepy movie that I've been I've been trying to find for years because I just couldn't accept that the last copies were destroyed. But um maybe we talk a little bit about the era of silent films in particular, you know, like um, Nosferatu, all all those sorts of things. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the era of silent films uh, spanned from about 1912 to 1929. And these were wildly popular to the point where they were just being churned out. We're talking about, you know, thousands of these films being produced uh, within a relatively short span of time, within, you know, around, around 15 years we are talking in the neighborhood of 11,000 silent feature films, but for reasons that that will become apparent pretty soon, only about 14% of those uh, 11,000 films remain today. And many of them come from a single studio, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, MGM. You may know them as the lion one. We're going to get into why that is. There are a couple reasons. And the first and I think one of the more interesting ones is the nature of, of, of media itself. The nature of what's the stuff that the film exists on. It is a physical uh, material. And while it represents a, an incredible, you know, leap in human technology to be able to capture moving pictures on literally a piece of like sellotape looking stuff, 
it's a pretty imperfect medium, at least the early forms of uh, what we call film. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car is called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your team enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents. Plus, you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber Teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. This episode is brought to you by Discover. You know, in today's world, it seems the best treatment is reserved only for a few. Well, Discover wants to change that by making everyone feel special. That's why with your Discover card, you have access to 24-7 live customer service, as well as $0 fraud liability, which means you're never held responsible for unauthorized purchases. Finally, no matter who you are or where you are in life, you'll feel special with Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash credit card. Limitations apply. Sometimes to get what you want, you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. We're nothing if not trailblazers here at Ridiculous History. And you know who also is a huge uh, iconoclastic challenger of the status quo, Ben? Who is that, Noel? Well, I think you know. It's hmm. Harry's. Yes, it's Harry's. They saw customers getting ripped off by all kinds of like slipshod, questionable products in the shaving industry. And they said, hey, you got to be the change. I was excited to try out the Winston set. It's an all-in-one package. You get some shaving cream. You get that great razor we're talking about. They also have deodorant. Yeah, I was about to say. Very helpful. I do really enjoy uh, their line of self-care products. Um, richly lathering, skin-softening body washes and scents like redwood, wild lens, and stone. You want to know what a stone smells like? I've often wondered. Well, you know, you can. <laughs> so don't settle for the status quo, folks. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash history. Once again, that's harrys.com slash history for a $3 trial set. Yeah, nitrate film stock was the hottest thing in town. Uh, unfortunately, it was often literally the hottest thing because uh, nitrate revolutionized filmmaking, but it had one big disadvantage in the world of material sciences. It is cartoonishly flammable. This stuff is so flammable <laughs> yeah. that it can burn underwater. So it's like... I mean, nitrate, when I hear nitrate, yeah. I think of like nitroglycerin, which is also very unstable. I know it's not the same thing, but, the, you know, obviously there's, there must be some root uh, to the two. Yeah, the 
This stuff eventually ends up being discontinued by Kodak in 1952. And you have to be so careful with the preservation of it. Humanity has learned the hard way to uh, how to properly handle this stuff. As a matter of fact, if you ask the Library of Congress right now, they'll tell you that less than 20% of American silent films survive today. Uh, and only like half of the ones shot before 1950 survive at all. Because even if it doesn't catch on fire, the film will degrade over time. Yeah, by the way, nitrocellulose, which is one of the primary materials in uh, nitrate prints, uh, is referred to as gun cotton. Um, It is the first replacement propellant for gunpowder, essentially. So, I mean, we're literally talking about very, very combustible stuff. Uh, And then you're right, Ben, the deterioration. I think there was an advancement in film stock, but even the next level kind of version of what what they updated it to still had its own problems something called vinegar syndrome yeah cellulose acetate film will start to get really brittle and you can tell when this degradation is occurring because it smells like vinegar so if you walk into a film archive and you're like whoa who's cleaning with vinegar no that means the film's in trouble there is a really cool label, I guess you could call it, reissue company that actually specializes in preserving kind of schlocky horror and exploitation movies like, you know, things like Amityville Horror and uh, Blood Delirium, Wolf of the Moon, like titles like that, uh, The Werewolf versus the Vampire Woman. And it's called Vinegar Syndrome. Then they specialize in, you know, restoring these kind of like, you know, 60s and 70s and 80s kind of, you know, schlocky horror and and trash films. But really, really neat company if you want to check out some weird sci-fi and kind of very bespoke B-movies. So people are on a mission, right? There was an attempt to replace cellulose nitrate film with cellulose acetate, but it came with its own vinegar-themed problems no matter what you do, after a certain point, you can't save this stuff. So there was a ticking clock. And by the 1980s, experts were saying, look, the majority of nitrate film will have decomposed by 2000, the year 2000, if we don't do something. So they started copying it. They deep freeze it. Uh, And what they're doing when they're deep freezing this, by the way, they're not solving the problem. They're kicking the can or kicking the film canister a little bit further down the road to get some time to figure out how to how how to save these stories you know what's interesting about that the idea of deep freezing it that is also a term that's kind of been co-opted into Mm -hmm. data um you know archiving or whatever so when you like have a massive data bank or like an archive of whatever it might be, let's say a company's, you know, video files or like a production company, if you put it into deep freeze, I think it's kind of like it compresses it a little bit. It makes it a little smaller and then you can like put it off site in a different place, but you can't directly access it in the same way you'd have to like thaw physical media in order to access it. I think it just occurred to me. That's like, that's where that comes from. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a huge thing. You'll hear that all the time. We hear it over in podcast land. But material science aside, it is fascinating. It is dangerous. Love your nitrate, but love it carefully because it could quickly become an explosive romance. Uh, As much as we love that stuff, we have to acknowledge another problem with silent film and why so much of it is lost. 
this stuff was everywhere, right? Uh, this was a relatively short era of time, as you described, Noel, but it was a very prolific time for studios and they didn't have any compunction about killing their darlings. You know what I mean? It was rare for a studio to say, we're going to save this silent film for posterity. Instead, they would say, we can't get any more money from this thing. Throw it out. We, we don't have enough room in, in, our, in our film library. And then, of course, think about it. You're a studio head in the era of silent film, and then talkies come out. Now you can hear, you know, uh, the stars of the silver screen. And this means, from a financial perspective, that these, these studio folks say, well, we don't need this. You know, why yeah. would we? We'll keep one, I guess, if we ever have a museum, but throw I the rest sometimes out. It sometimes it requires a bit of hindsight to even appreciate a past version of a thing that that then was improved upon right it's like you know for, for the bean counters and and maybe even the, the you know the, the theater goers it's like yeah god throw all the the silent films in the trash because that was antiquated and now we have something that's like next level but then enough time passes and you kind of realize oh wow that represented you know a time and place and we'll never be able to get that back again and so you know that's when archiving becomes really important and archivists i think tend to look at these kinds of things through a different lens than consumers uh, traditional you know consumers of media mm-hmm. or the folks you know with their hands on the purse strings mhm yeah the the purse holders the puppet masters of the purse uh, were also looking at cellulose nitrate films in particular and they're saying hey these things are made with silver. Why don't we just melt it down and we can save a little on the back end, uh, you know, from our silver budget. So, uh, so Samuel Goldwyn of the film studios we were describing, the infamous Samuel Goldwyn, uh, he was asked once upon a time about the destruction of sets on the studio backlot he had taken over. Uh, the Museum of Modern Art Film Library contacted him. And he said, look, you have to realize I cannot rest on the laurels of the past and cannot release traditions instead of current pictures. Uh, so they were mainly focused just on current releases. And I think you make a good point about the benefit of hindsight because they, their response would have been, you know, we're not a library. We're not a museum. We're a working motion picture studio. We want what's hot, baby. And they had a point. Yeah, and I mean, you know, we've obviously got processes now uh, to submit things to the Library of Congress for archiving, you know, in, in the National Archives and all of that stuff. But, you know, that requires effort. That requires forethought. You know, that requires someone caring enough to to do the thing and to submit it. And when you're just kind of go, 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 uh, money, 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 and all that stuff like you are in old Hollywood, those things can, can literally, you know, fall by the wayside. But, you know, despite... Mr. Goldwyn's, you know, maybe proclivity for smashing sets, as as we had mentioned or alluded to at the top of the show, it was the MGM Studios, the Metro Goldwyn Mayer Studios, that uh, that did have some forethought and decided, you know what, we think this is worth doing, and we're going to, you know, make an effort to preserve uh, these films. But that wouldn't be until decades later. So at this point you know, the Goldwyn is sort of out of the picture and we've got some new, you know, more thoughtful folks in charge, perhaps. No, can I jump in here for a second? Cause I got something on that point. Mm-hmm. Of Austin. So you guys know to all the ridiculous historians in this room with us right now, 
uh, I was out in Portland recently, and out in Portland, I went and checked out two separate places. One was Movie Badness, and another place was uh, Next Level Arcade. I think I sent you guys photos of this stuff. But what I found interesting was both those places, they weren't classified as, like, a for-profit. They were all non-profit museums, because that's, like, it's these people who had the dedication to be like, we have to treat this as a museum. Like, well, obviously, we want people to come, like, rent the movies or play the arcade machines because what's the point of just having them? You can't use them, but Mm -hmm. these are just independent people. And it's a really tricky thing because to the point that Golden was making, is it their responsibility to save it? Who knows? But it's like, I feel like saving this stuff is super important. And so is it on like people, the fans of the stuff, is it our responsibility to save it or is it partially responsibility of the people? I don't know the answer to that, but I found that really cool that I was out there. And like, it's one of those things also, it's like, how do we get more places like that? Because physical media is going away. Obviously like arcades, as you guys know, are basically non-existent nowadays. And so it's like watching this stuff because it's so easy. Cause it's like the mainstream stuff of it will survive uh, because it's known, but the, the smaller stuff won't. So uh, that's, that's my five cents. Well, and, I love it. And, and, and then the question becomes too, is like, just because it's old, is it a value? Like, does it, what, where, what does it represent in the kind of continuum of culture? Like, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a museum curator, you don't put everything ever that existed in, in the history of art or, or civilization in the museum. That would be impossible. But you pick and choose and kind of paint a picture. So it's like, you know, cu- exactly. And curating that, that applies to film. That implies, applies to, there's a really awesome pinball museum in Asheville. And I bet you they have some sort of nonprofit status too, because they've got, you know, placards on everything that like tells you about the manufacturing of it, when it was made, you know, during what period and, you know, what it kind of sprung from and what was inspired by and stuff like that. I, I love all this stuff, but yeah, yeah. And, and, and Ben, I mean, <laughs> Do you think it's up to individuals like us, the people that actually kind of are enthusiasts, or is the nature of commerce such that it's going to just kind of stamp that stuff out if it isn't making anybody a buck and it's just going to be up to people to crowdsource this stuff? And is it eventually going to be an uphill battle to the point that people are just going to kind of give up? It's up to the passionate. You know what I mean? Ultimately, and I know that sounds a little TED talky, but it's very much true. Like, I, I love the pinball museums you guys both named in my head they're museums i also like places like the neon museum out in vegas i love people who are incredibly passionate about very specific things if you know everything about neon lunch is on me bro uh and i want to learn all all the weird facts uh but that's why we that's why we do the stuff we do on ridiculous history and the many other shows we're involved with it's It is up to, in many cases, it's up to the really driven people who are head over heels in love with a particular art form or medium and don't need to make a ton of money off of it, genuinely. You know what I mean? It's kind of like how, you know, the, the best bookstores you run into are the little family shops where it's clearly somebody who just started a room to house all their books that they couldn't fit in their house. You know, their cats there, you know, sure. they'll hang out. They Shop don't care cat. if you loiter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so those people I think are really the future of preservation. And uh, when they team up into nonprofits and foundations and issue grants, they can do some truly wonderful things. They can fight against lost media. Unfortunately, society just didn't get there in time because the odds were stacked against silent film. 
I'm glad you mentioned grants because that really is such an important piece when you have an endowment, you know, from let's say a old Hollywood kind of executive and they're in their estate, they leave, you know, an endowment for a very specific purpose, which is archiving. That's usually what it takes because there isn't a whole hell of a lot of money to be made. Even if you're like a passionate collector, you're only going to buy that, that $65 Blu-ray of, 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 you know, night of the lepus, the one time mm-hmm. <laughs> you and your, you know, 50 other, you know, nerd brethren or whatever. These are not like big hot ticket, you know, flying off the shelves, uh, selling like hotcakes kind of situations. Like I said, the kind of stuff vinegar syndrome sells. Or or maybe there's an actor that's such a big deal that they hold some sway as to maybe the films that they're in start to get paid a little bit more attention to and treated with a little bit more reverence other than just, you know, a lot of those old silent films, they're like character actors that didn't really become quote-unquote celebrities, but then you have someone like Mary Pickford. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car's called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your team enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents. Plus, you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber Teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. This episode is brought to you by Discover. You know, in today's world, it seems the best treatment is reserved only for a few. Well, Discover wants to change that by making everyone feel special. That's why with your Discover card, you have access to 24-7 live customer service, as well as $0 fraud liability, which means you're never held responsible for unauthorized purchases. Finally, no matter who you are or where you are in life, you'll feel special with Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash credit card. Limitations apply. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Yeah, Mary Pickford. Okay, Mary Pickford's films survived, a lot of them, because of her own initiative. She was proactive. She did this. The studio didn't do this for her. She would send the films that she starred in to the Library of Congress, and and she, she didn't send other films, mainly the ones 
that she started. And she wrote this letter to them in 1946. And she said, I wish to say to you how happy I am that my pictures will be housed in the Library of Congress and how greatly I appreciate the honor conferred upon me by your wish to have them there. And this goes back to the idea of international film archives, U.S. archives, all curating their collection. They had to make the call, right? Curation is really, um, at, at a very basic level, curation is the act of building a narrative, right? In a, a specific story about some part of history or science uh, or you know, if there's a frying pan museum, it's like, what are the most influential, pivotal moments in frying pan history? And there's nothing wrong with that. But that means that, like you said earlier, you can't have everything in the museum because then it's just the museum of everything. Yeah, <laughs> just impossible. Uh, but speaking of everything, I, I, I got I, this is more of a thing to talk about, so that I want you to know. But there is an incredible new documentary on Netflix about the idea of infinity, and it has really gotten me thinking about like what is everything? What is the nature of everything? And how is there a finite amount of like stuff in the universe? When you say the museum of everything, that's what I think of. It's like a museum that's just like fractals that just kind of <laughs> just infinitely dumps into a black hole and never really stops. Um, I wanted to add to that. Mary Pickford was one of the original founders of the Motion Picture Academy. Her endowments and philanthropy created numerous Hollywood institutions kind of like around the idea of preserving the culture and uh, history and physical medium of, uh, of old Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. And the Museum of Everything really reminds me of this excellent story about a library by uh, Borges. And in this library, the story is really weird. It's just a description of this endless library. I want to go to there, as Liz Lemon would say on 30 Rock. But barring the world of fiction, right now, humanity still has a lot of constraints. And that's why things like the Motion Picture Academy and things like these film archives played such a role in preserving what we do have from this era. And this is where we have to talk more about MGM because they really stand out when it comes to preservation. They ponied up money, their own money from, from the corporation, and they preserved 113 silent films. Uh, that's, that's a pretty significant chunk of silent film overall. And uh, it wasn't just the films made by MGM. They, they preserved some of the films of their ancestor companies, and they started giving them to, what was it, George Eastman House at first? Correct, which is, you know, I think one of Eastman being co-founder of, of Kodak. So again, skin in the game, you know, in terms of like the actual physical medium. So it's interesting uh, that this, the George Eastman House is one of the largest uh, archives and museums and collections of, of photographic history. Um, so, but this is, they were already doing something along these lines in the 30s. They were giving prints or negatives for these films, you know, to be archived. But it wasn't until the 60s that they started uh, a duplication program, which was a big deal. Because when you make a duplicate, you're starting that decay process from zero. Yeah. You're resetting the clock on, on that, uh, that, that, that slowly degrading piece of, of, of ephemera. Mm -hmm. And once, and shout out to Ephemeral, okay. one of our favorite podcasts. Yeah, nice one, Max. Well done. Uh, so the, uh, and, and Alex and Trevor. Uh, so the 
the process here makes a lot of sense. They're doing their best to accurately reproduce a film, make a duplicate of it in a less finicky medium. And then once they got that preservation process down, they take the nitrate master copy and they donate it to the Eastman Museum, which is legit. It's the oldest museum ever dedicated to photography. And right around like the 60s is a big year for this. In the in 1968, the AFI, American Film Institute, is funded by the National Endowment of the Arts, and they start placing other nitrate collections with archives. Again, this is not really the stuff you can keep at home, folks, right? You, you need a dedicated spot for your hoard of nitrate. So the Library of Congress gets prints from Paramount, Columbia Pictures, Warner Brothers. They get some silent negatives, and, I th- and they also get a few features from Universal. The Museum of Modern Art gets the Fox Studio Nitrate prints, and then they spread out to these other archives. And honestly, it's good to decentralize this, right? To have it in multiple archives, because like humans learned with the Library of Alexandria, you keep all your all your bits of media in one place, you might regret it later. You know, I had an existential computer meltdown crisis of epic proportions the other week, which you'll remember I had to skip out on recording because I thought that my hard drive that I have like, you know, music projects, mm-hmm. podcast backup, all of the things on had failed. And I realized it was something else that I was able to fix. But the feeling of of having potentially lost this just like years of work, you know, of my life mm-hmm. uh, really kicked me into a, a reality mode. And I immediately invested in like a, a subscription online um, cloud backup service called Carbonite. And we are not sponsored by them, but it literally, you know, you can restore your stuff from the cloud. And also I ordered a second drive that I'm going to have mirrored to my original drive because that feeling is one of the worst. Can you imagine if you were the person that maybe was responsible for o- overseeing that that Library of Alexandria and then to watch it go up in flames? I can't even handle the uh, three novels I lost. Like Mitch Hedberg, I just I have no option now but to convince myself they weren't that good because I'm not rewriting them. Or you could lie to yourself, like how all y'all are lying about how Shazam is not a movie. It Come is on, a man! Movie. Look at the link. Look at the link I put in the I chat. I read that whole link. I read that whole link. <laughs> That's what I was doing when I was quiet earlier in this episode. And I, yeah, you guys are just gaslighting me. Look, we're gonna. You know what we should do? There's nothing I, you can say to convince me. Here's a more healthy way to do this. Let's bracket the conversation out of respect for our friendship and preserve our broship like it's nitrate film. And instead, let's reach out to Sinbad and see if he'll just make Shazam. Or if you prefer, make another one, okay? Uh, (laughs) What's he doing? Sinbad, write to us. We can't wait to hear from you. Uh, We want to bring this to reality. So these archives, they're kind of fighting, they're fighting the good war against entropy. And they get films from individual collectors, you know, estates of cinephiles, small companies, overseas archives, and they're trying to get titles that would have been lost or at the very least not available in the States. But they don't have like a common rubric, right? They don't have a uniform code of what to do. So they have different policies for collecting stuff. They have different parent organizations. They have different financial woes. And the five major U.S. archives that emerge, now they all have different processes and they constitute the national collection. It's difficult to say 
which archive has the most titles, or especially when it comes to silent film, just because they were all going about the game so differently. Uh, we know that, again, foundations play a role. There's a lot of philanthropy in this, right? This is not, this is not one of those charitable causes that people typically donate a couple bucks to, right? It's not NPR. It's not a Sarah McLaughlin pet drive. You know, this is this is something where if you heard about it for the first time, you would say, don't we have people for that? Don't we have folks already doing that? Why do they need money from us? But thankfully, a lot of, a lot of pretty well-heeled film buffs who played a big role in this, not just actors like Pickford, but folks like David Woodley Packard. Yes, David Woodley Packard, heir to the that printer fortune. Uh, Hewlett Packard. Hew, Hew, yeah. Hewlett Packard. I mean, you know, they made like laptops and stuff too, but I think today they're mainly known for their their combo printer scanner fax machines. Um, but yeah, he uh, is heir to that massive fortune. And through the David and Lucille Packard Foundation and then the Packard Humanities Institute, he was responsible for a wealth of, of, of archive of, of archival activities. Uh, also the Packard campus for audio conservation, um, which was built by the PHI uh, for the library of Congress started, you know, op- opened its doors in 2008 with v- really the height of, of archival storage facilities to make sure that all kinds of uh, medium media could be preserved. Cause if we think about these nitrate films, right? Um, mm-hmm. Certain conditions are going to, you know, speed up or slow down that breakdown. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's another transformation that occurs in the world of archiving in the 1980s, thanks to the efforts of one Sir J. Paul Getty Jr. And that's a little bit of a tease for an episode we have coming very soon. We can't give you more info than that. We're going to focus on the good stuff right now, the film archiving. So uh, old JPG Jr. funds a conservation center and new nitrate vaults for the National Film and Television Archive over there in the UK. And in the US, more wealthy philanthropists are donating additional funds for infrastructure, particularly folks like uh, Celeste Bartos or the Meyer Foundation, the Academy Foundation. They're, again, they're fighting the good fight and they're getting films that are American films from other countries. This is truly a global international effort. I think the the largest collection of exported American films came from a place called the Narodny Filmovi Archive in uh, the Czech Republic. I do not, none of us speak that language natively. Uh, the foreign films are a huge resource because they often have missing material, right? Like if a segment of a film has decayed, you can get another copy from someplace halfway across the world and they might have that sequence. So of the 3,311 U.S. silent feature films that survive in, in any form, even not completely, 886 of those were entirely found overseas, Pretty neat stuff, and it, I think it speaks highly of uh, what us film nerds can do when we're motivated. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we've always sort of seen a, a bit more appreciation for the art of cinema uh, abroad. You know what I mean? Like Hollywood 
certainly is, you know, ground zero for big blockbuster movies and all that stuff. And it's big business there. And, you know, but I do feel like, you know, companies like Studio Canal, for example, which I believe is based in France, there is just a little bit more reverence for film as an art form uh, abroad in some ways than there is right here in, in America. I mean, look at, you know, what they give out Oscars for. <laughs> I mean, they're usually, mm-hmm. you know, they're fine. I'm not trying to, you know, crap on the Oscars entirely, but it just seems like, you know, it's a little more broad here. It's a little more designed to kind of be an award show with like trotting out celebrities and stuff. Whereas, you know, Can and like the Palm Door and things like that, like mm-hmm. those are just, they are really truly looking for something very unique and like very, you know, cutting edge. And that's like, you know, moving the art form in different directions. So that all makes sense to me. Yeah, and, you know, this is not to say that the battle has been won or that everything went smoothly. It wasn't all trumpets and angel farts in the fight to uh, save silent film. And we're going to pause it there because uh, this is how we know we're onto something with this series, folks. Lost Media has already become a two-parter. The first part of this is already a two-parter. We're doing a 1A, 1B thing right here, and I couldn't be happier about it, Noel. Oh, same. I have a problem though. What happens if we lose part one of this series and it just jumps into part two? That's all people ever hear. We can never find it again. It's a mystery. It'll be perfect. Indeed. So until we return with part two, a huge thanks to super producer Max Williams, Alex Williams, who composed this theme and is also the creator and uh, uh, presenter of and a curator of Ephemeral, which we love very much, uh, which Max works on as well. And you'll hear more about it in part two, assuming both pieces of this media survive. In the meantime, thanks to Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister. Thanks to Eve Jeffcoat, Christopher Hasiotis. Uh, and thanks to, all, thanks to all the fellow cinephiles out there. This was a fun one. See you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you, as the parent, can follow their ride on a live tracking map. Yeah, when your teen requests a trip, they're matched with highly rated, experienced drivers and you receive real-time notifications. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today, they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. It makes them feel safe, and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. And today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber Teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details.
This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places.